Well, good morning. morning. It's good to be here with you. We don't get here very often. I tell you, when you only come once in a while, you really notice the changes. The building looks great. Haven't seen these seats before. Everything's looking good. Wish we could be here more often, but most Sundays, we're over at Maple Root Baptist Church in Coventry. Uh, They've been without a pastor for a little while, so I've been filling in on Sunday mornings uh, teaching the Word. Now, one of the things that I ask every Sunday... Um, whenever I get the opportunity to share the Word of God, I ask this question, are you reading your Bible? I encourage you to do so. You know, of course, it's the best-selling book of all time. It's not on the New York Times bestseller list. They don't include it because it would be number one virtually every week. Now, no book about which more books have been written than the Bible. There are bestsellers written about the Bible. Nobody really knows how many copies of the Bible have been printed, sold, or distributed, but recent surveys put the count about 6 billion copies in more than 2,000 languages and dialects, and growing. And whatever the precise figure, the Bible is by far the best-selling book of all times. Read it. Read it more if you're reading it. It's the best way to interpret current events. It's the best way, the best resource for understanding what the future holds. It reveals God's plans for us and for the world. The Bible tells us that God created man with freedom. John Milton put it nicely in Paradise Lost. He said, we were created sufficient to stand, though free to fall. Adam and Eve were created with freedom to make decisions, to make choices for themselves. We know that the story of their fall. And since then, every one of us has been created with freedom to make choices. I remember as a young man, when I first lived by myself, I sat there one day thinking, I can do anything I want. There's nobody here to make rules except me. And in the same breath that I, said, that I realized I can do anything I want, I realized there was a question I had to answer. What am I going to do? How am I going to live? What am I going to give myself to? What's going to be my story? The Bible tells us that God gives us ample freedom. And it tells us that one day he will judge the earth. And he'll judge its inhabitants. He'll judge each one of us individually. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 says, Man, a person who's female, man is destined to die once. And after that, to face judgment. Now you can think of it in our present day, the world we live in, you could think of it kind of as uh, in the context of being arrested. Have you ever been arrested? I hope not. But if you have, you know what happens. You can think of, of death kind of as a demarcation, demarcation where you get detained and you come before the judge. Well, when you're arrested, charges are brought against you and you come before a judge and the judge asks you a question. Right? There's a, a, a hearing where the judge says, How do you plead? Now, there are two basic pleas, guilty and not guilty, right? If you plead guilty, then you receive a sentence. If you plead not guilty, then you go to trial. But here, with our complex legal system and the vagaries of the human condition, we've got other pleas too, don't we? We've got no contest or no low contendery, where it's kind of a guilty plea, it's a form of a guilty plea, or you don't admit guilt, but you don't contest the charges. Now, why would somebody plea 
that way. Because in some cases, some criminal acts, like uh, where there might be civil suits brought against you as well, uh, something like uh, 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 reckless driving or uh, aggravated assault, uh, you might plead no contest if, if you feel like you're guilty because then in a civil suit, you can't be found to have admitted fault. And that's only in some states. Now, of course, we have other pleas too here like uh, uh, guilty by reason of insanity. And I say, I did it, but I was crazy when I did it. And so that should mitigate the punishment or that should mitigate the uh, judgment against me. There's also uh, something that we call plea bargaining. It has become very popular where the prosecution and the defense, they make a deal. Maybe there are multiple charges. They say, well, we'll reduce the charges. Uh, we'll, the jails are too crowded, so we'll get rid of those charges if you plead guilty to this charge. Sometimes they'll say, well, if you give up information about others who were involved, we'll, we'll plea it out for you. Uh, or if you tell us where the money is hidden. So all kinds of plea bargaining that goes on. It's uh, uh, very common. Uh, the Bible makes it clear that each of us has a court appearance coming. We'll each stand before the judge, every person on the planet. And when charges are brought against you by God, there's only one plea possible, guilty. There's no way to cop a plea, no bargains. No bravado when you come before that judge. No arrogance. No I did it my way swagger. No way to cop a plea, just a falling to the knees in shame and fear. No option but to admit guilt before God. And I say it that way because it's true that when our sinfulness is exposed by God's holiness, we've got no plea, just guilty. It's true of all people. No one can stand before God on his or her own merit and, and prevail, just guilty. That's what the Bible says, Romans chapter 3, verse 10, the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Rome, wanted the people to understand this. He quoted from Psalm 14, 1. He quoted from Psalm 53, 1. It's throughout the Bible, this sentence. There is no one righteous. And it means no one righteous on their own merit. There is no one righteous, not even one. And I want to make it clear this morning that we know how we're going to be judged, that there, make no mistake about the standard by which you'll be judged. You can think of it if you go back to your school testing days. We have lots of it now. All kinds of standardized testing, state tests. We have federal tests. In the old days, most tests were what they call norm-referenced. And norm-referenced meant that your score was considered relative to the scores of other students who took the test. So if you scored on what they call the 90th percentile, it didn't mean that you got 90% of the questions correct or answers correct, it meant that relative to other students, you answered more, more uh, questions correctly than 90% of the people who took the test. If you scored at the 30th percentile, you did better than 30% of the people who took the test. as a norm reference test. Now, most tests today are not that way. They're criteria referenced. They're based on a standard. And everybody who meets the standard passes the test. Everyone who fails to meet the standard fails the test. Criteria reference testing. 
How do you think God tests? Not norm reference. A lot of people make that mistake, don't they? Yeah, I'm no worse than the next guy. I'll take my chances. When I get up there, God's, and you can look on your own website. It has this, right? Uh, it was written about people trying to get their way to God, and they think, well, uh, God's going to weigh my good against my bad, and I'll come out a little bit better on the good side, and he'll let me in. It's not about relative goodness. God is criteria testing us against his holiness, his standard. Now, I, for one, stand guilty before him when it comes to his standard. It's my confession today that I have failed to keep the full law of God. I've broken his commandments numerous times. Even in my attempts to keep them, I've failed to meet the divine standard. I'm a sinner. How about you? Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What's your status before God today? Now, I say this in the context of knowing that most of us here profess to be Christians, and we just celebrated Easter, Resurrection Day. But I come at it this way this morning because I believe to, to fully appreciate it, to fully appreciate the incredible significance of God's work for us. We need to come to grips with the judgment we face without it. So my sin makes me an object of God's wrath. That's what the Bible says. Judgment is my destiny. The only one with the power to release me is the judge, God himself. Praise God. He wants to save me from destruction. He wants to save you from destruction. Right? The most famous verse in all the Bible, you know it. John 3.16. God loved the world so much that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish. Have eternal life. Instead. You know what the next verse says, John 3.17? It's God's desire. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Paul explains this more fully in Romans chapter 3. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Romans chapter 3. We'll start with verse 19. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. But now, a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known by which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness, comes, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate His justice at the present time so as to be just 
and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. The law, as it says here, the law makes it clear that we're all sinners. We all fall short. It says in verse 20, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. No one on their own merit, no one on their own effort will be declared righteous in his sight because no one has fully observed the law. No one has met the standard of God's holiness except one. Jesus, the Lamb of God. That's what the Bible says. Now these verses we just read, sometimes they seem a little confusing. They say that in essence that Jesus came and died for our atonement, rose again for our redemption. In Him we're justified. Now those are not words that we use in our everyday conversations very often. So it will help us maybe to talk a little bit about them this morning. We'll start with atonement. Now, if you have the King James Version, it doesn't say atonement, it says propitiation. Basically, whatever word you mean, it means the same thing. The Greek word means that Jesus in his death fully satisfied God's justice. That's important. We all know the grief sin can cause. I can testify to the grief my own sin has caused me. Sometimes it's the sin of others that causes grief. Or puts a weight on us. But imagine this. Imagine the accumulated grief of everyone in this room. How heavy is that? Then expand it. Imagine imagine accumulated grief and the weight of sin of everybody around us. In our whole nation, in our whole world. But now multiply it by the centuries past. All the sin of all the world. Of all time. When Jesus was crucified, he took the full weight. All the grief for all that sin. Upon himself, the full punishment to satisfy God's justice. In verse 25 here in Romans 3 where it says, I'm reading the NIV, it says God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. You can also rightly translate that as God presented him as the one who would turn aside his wrath, taking away sin. See, we must understand clearly God doesn't wink at sin. He doesn't just say, no problem. God doesn't excuse our sin. He doesn't just dismiss the charges. Saying, no big deal. Ain't no big thing, brother. That's not what God says. Jesus, the Bible teaches, Jesus took the full weight of the penalty, the punishment for our sin upon himself. Jesus paid my debt, paid your debt, in full. Yes, amen. In him, justice was satisfied. It's true. Jesus came to die. He said as much. But then let me ask you this. Why didn't Jesus just come on Good Friday? Couldn't he just have come on Good Friday and died and be buried and rise again on the third day and ascend to heaven? Would that not have satisfied the atonement we required? Yes. But then why, but then why did he come as an infant? Why live a life to adulthood? 
Why conduct a public ministry before he satisfied our atonement? We can answer this question. We can begin answering it by asking how the atonement was accomplished. And there's a word that we don't use very often, but I think it's a very important word when we talk about the concept of redemption and atonement. Imputation is how he accomplished our atonement. Our sins were imputed to Jesus, right? Impute means to reckon or to credit or to attribute or to ascribe, in this case, to someone else. It's correct to say that Jesus took our sin upon himself, that our sin was imputed or reckoned or credited to him. It was taken from my account and put on his account. No longer reckoned to me, but reckoned to him. Paid for by him, making me innocent of it. By by imputation, Jesus took our sin upon himself and he endured the wrath of God on our behalf. That's our atonement. That's the message of Easter. But it doesn't tell us specifically why Jesus didn't just arrive on earth on Good Friday. It doesn't explain his life here. But understanding why Jesus lived, as well as why he died, is of great importance to understanding the complete concept of redemption. That is, being made right. Before God. See the answer again. Imputation. The atonement makes us innocent before God. But it doesn't make us righteous. Before God. That's why Jesus lived his life here on earth. He came to fulfill the call of the priesthood. He lived to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. Jesus is the only one who fully lived up to the requirements of the law. And so he became our high priest forever, the Bible says. His righteousness is imputed to the believer through faith so that the believer is made right with God, so that we have a right standing with God. Not just innocent, but right standing, righteous in God's sight. See, Jesus fulfilled the requirements of the law. So he imputed that righteousness. This is the doctrine of double imputation. Imputation. The complete picture of God's redemptive work in Christ. Our sins are imputed or reckoned to Christ. Christ's righteousness is imputed or credited to us. That's redemption. Fully redeemed. Redemption literally means to deliver by paying a price, a ransom. The righteous life of Jesus and the shedding of his precious blood ransom us, as it were, from slavery to sin to freedom from sin and to right standing with God. Wow. See, you use the word, Paul uses the word justified a whole bunch of times here in Romans. Because of the righteous life and the atoning death, 
of Jesus, we stand fully justified before God. That is, not only are our sins not counted against us, by our faith in Him, we're declared righteous. Anyone says, no one is declared righteous by observing the law? That, that's the same word translated justified. But we can turn it around and say, those of us who trust in Christ through faith are declared righteous. In His death, God imputed the guilt of our sin to Jesus, and by the power of His resurrection, His resurrection is the exclamation point on His complete fulfillment of God's law. Christ's victorious righteousness is imputed to all who place their faith in Him. So in Christ, we stand before God, the judge of the universe, as both not guilty and righteous. That's amazing. That's good news. And if you look here at verse 25 in Romans 3, it says we're justified freely. It means two things. It's available to everyone who believes at no cost. And it can't be earned. It's a gift of God, not of works. So nobody can boast. Now I want to share just a few things the scripture says about, about our imputed righteousness. Verses to rely on. There are many more. We'll do just a few. If you flip over in the book of Romans to chapter 4, Paul is talking about Abraham and his faith. And he says, starting in verse 20, Yet he, Abraham, did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he'd promised. That is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For those who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. You go over to Romans chapter 10, verse 4. It says, Christ is the end of the law, or the fulfillment of the law, the completion of the law. Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. And Paul, again, writing to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I read that verse, I get filled with gratitude. Wow. And I wonder, why do I even struggle with sin at all? Why can't I just live that? In Ephesians, Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. He explains a little bit about that. Ephesians chapter 4, starting with verse 22. He says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self. See, we still have that old nature. It struggles for dominance with us. It, it competes. He says, put off that old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. To be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And to the church in Philippi, so Paul wrote to all the churches, he wanted everybody to know this. He says, not having, Philippians 3, 9, 
not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, something I, I, I did to my own merit, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Christian faith is a wonderful thing, isn't it? Trusting Jesus activates the double imputation of God's redemptive work. He grants us freedom from sin. That's wonderful. But in addition to that, he grants us power for living righteously. He not only sees us as righteous, we not only get right standing, he also gives us the power to live righteously as we trust him. In fact, the Bible says that's why we're here, to do the work of God. We're not just innocent of sin, we're empowered to do the work of God as we follow our high priest. See, Ephesians chapter 2, you know, verses 8 and 9, where I say, For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves, the gift of God, not of works, so nobody can boast. You know what the next verse says, verse 10? For we're God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do what? To do good works, yes, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You have an important, important, important job. God calls each one of us to do, the, the, to do his work, to be his hands and his feet. Back in 2 Corinthians, we read that one verse, verse 21. You know, the verse 17 says, uh, if you're in Christ, you're a new creature. The old is past, the new has come. And you go down a few more verses. Verse 20 says, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us. That's what he does. His appeal for reconciliation to the world is made through whom? Through us. Through those of us who believe. Every one of us has a different circle of people in our lives. God puts people in our lives. Maybe it's just a, a, a quick intersection with somebody at a, at a checkout counter in a supermarket. Maybe it's somebody you work with every day. Maybe it's somebody in your family. Maybe it's a, a whole combination of different people that God wants us to serve by His Spirit's power and to testify to His goodness. Not just verbally, by our lives to live in the righteous, righteousness that he grants us. We're to be the hands and the feet of Christ until he returns. You see, that's a great promise we have, isn't it? There are five great events in Christianity. The incarnation and life of Jesus. The atonement or crucifixion of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus. The ascension of Jesus and the return of Jesus. Four have happened, haven't they? One's still waiting. We're waiting on him. He calls us to be his hands and feet until he comes back. But he will come back. Now, Jesus, the first time he came, he came in peace and humility on a donkey to atone for our sins and purchase our redemption. When he wrote in, you know, we call the triumphal entry. Two of the Gospels reference Zechariah 9.9. 9. See, it says, Your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus came to bring peace and to purchase redemption. When he comes again, Revelation 19.11 says he'll be on a horse. Now I saw heaven opened. It says in Revelation 19.11, And behold, a white horse, 
And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. And then down to verse 16 of that same chapter. It says, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The, nor- the Lord's next ride won't be on a donkey. It'll be on a horse. And he'll be bringing justice and judgment. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. Remember we referenced verse 27 earlier? It's appointed a man once to die and after this to face judgment. The very next verse says, Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. And when he comes again, those of us who are waiting for him, who's placed our faith in him, and we, we've, our, our guilt of sin has been imputed to him, and his rights have been imputed, that's going to be a glorious day for us. Right? We're going to go with him. We're going to be with him forever. Every tear we had a song this morning, no more sorrow, no more pain. Every tear will be wiped away. That's our future. That's our destiny. Now, let's end at the beginning, right? Go back to that courtroom scene. I didn't say it then. I'll say it now. You know it's true. I'm not going to have to make a plea. The judge is not going to say, what do you plead? He's going to call my name. It's in the song this morning, right? And he's going to say, that one's bought. That one's mine. Been redeemed. No guilt. Won't have to plea. Not guilty by the work of Christ. That's the reward of faith. Justified freely. will be declared righteous because of the work of Christ. Those who have not placed their faith in Christ will stand before that judge with no option. They'll stand condemned. And if you're here this morning and you've never placed your faith in Christ, I encourage you, look at what the Scripture says. Look at what He's done for you. The free gift of God. Payment for your sins because He loved you. And if you've never placed your faith in Christ, place your faith in Christ. Be released for all time from the penalty of sin. If you don't, you get to that point and you stand before the judge, you'll fall to your knees. But it won't be in victory. And so we have a job to do, don't we? With our friends, with our families, with our co-workers. Job number one is pray. Not speak, pray. Job number one, pray. Pray for those God has put in your life. Pray for your neighbors. Pray for your co-workers. Pray for the people you just bump into, for the person who's rude to you at the restaurant. Right? Just pray that God might bring them to the same saving grace to which he's brought us. There's no reason for anyone to stand condemned today because Jesus paid the price. If that's you this morning, accept God's free gift while it's still available before he returns in judgment. And to those of us, to those of us who profess faith, and that's most of us here, right? To those of us who profess faith in Christ, who have experienced the justification of God in our lives, let's show our gratitude to him by the way we live. Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, when the people came to, to John the Baptist to be baptized, what did he say to them? He said, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. See, when I read this, these verses, when we talk about the things I've shared with you this morning, I realize I, I hate my sin. I want to hate my sin as much as God hates my sin. And I want to produce, I want to repent from it. From every, from every uh, inclination 
toward it, I want to repent. And I want to produce fruit in keeping with the gratitude that comes from the forgiveness of Christ. Amen? Amen. Father in heaven, we just thank you this morning for this time we've been able to spend together in your word. And we just ask that you would help us to live lives that please you. We thank you for doing all the work that was necessary to redeem us, to make, to make us acceptable to you, that we won't be found wanting. We thank you so much that it's your plan to equip us to do your work. Please fill us with your spirit and help us to be empowered to live lives of victory, lives of joy and peace as we rest in you and help us to be a good influence on our neighbors and our co-workers and our family members, on everyone that you put into our lives. Lord, we ask you for endurance to do your work and for strength and for fellowship with one another to encourage us. In Jesus' name, amen.